Go ahead and turn to Galatians 4. We're going to be in 12 through 31 this morning. So um, if you are a parent or have any responsibility as an authority over others, you understand the concept or the struggle with communicating something or the same thing over and over and over and over again. Um, it's kind of kind of goes like this, the whole like, how many times do I have to tell you, you fill in the blank. Um, maybe, um, maybe as a parent, uh, it's dealing with your kid throwing food or coloring on uh, all the wrong things. Um, or maybe it's dealing with how they relate to others. Um, or maybe you're a supervisor at work and you feel like trying to communicate, okay, here's the timing of this project and here's what needs to happen, and yet it's not really happening. So you continually have to communicate it and recommunicate it and recommunicate it, and you're just like, if you would just get this, like, my life would be so much easier. Uh, or maybe um, you're a teacher, and as a teacher, what you do is you communicate instructions over and over and over again, feeling like they're not getting it. Um, I taught for five years uh, at a Christian school, and uh, here's, here's the thing that I often saw. Um, I required my students, uh, actually the school required students, to memorize Scripture in a Christian school. And, uh, and so I was a mean teacher. I made them do like massive, uh, like 25 verses at once. Um, and, uh, but here, so here's what students would do. Like let's say I would have them do Philippians 2, 1 through 3. Okay? And uh, any of you who went to Christian school, you mastered this just like I did. Um, you could memorize that thing in like 15 minutes. So you could go to class and not really have looked at it and sit down and like get that thing in your head enough to get, go up to the teacher and regurgitate it out um, only to lose it like 20 minutes later. But you got 100 out of 100, you know, you're good to go. Right? And I told my students over and over and over again, you can do that, but in the end it's going to nail you. So I have students that would, every week, those couple verses, they'd nail it every single time. When it got time to do like Philippians 2, like 1 through 15 or 1 through 20, like toward the end of the year, they'd fail pretty consistently. And the kids who got it on the front end and, and put in the effort on the front end, what, what would happen is, it was almost easy for them. But they, there are so many that they never, they never got it. Paul here in this text is dealing with the same exact thing. And what we're going to see this morning is that he feels like nothing he says is getting through to the Galatians. Let's look at verse 12. We're going to see this unbelievable personal. So much of what we've seen so far is this theological argument, and Paul comes away from this deep-rooted theological argument and just gets real personal. It just gets real practical for the Galatians. Real heartfelt pastoral. Look at verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. 
You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify that you... For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for, the good, for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. So Paul understood what it meant to contextualize the gospel. Um, A lot of times when we hear the word contextualize, what immediately happens is our minds go to compromise, okay? There's a big difference. Paul understood what it meant to contextualize, not compromise the gospel, because notice what he says in verse 12. It says, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. So he, he put himself in their situation. It's the 1 Corinthians 9, I believe. I became all things to all people so that some might be saved. Um, theologian John Stott puts, puts it like this. In, in seeking to win other people for Christ, our end is to make them like us. But the means to that end is to make ourselves like them. If they are to become one with us in Christian conviction and experience, we must first become one with them in Christian compassion. Paul's putting himself in that situation. But what's interesting is is Paul also says, I became like you. What what does he mean by that? Well, we've talked a ton and we know a ton about this reality that Paul is a devout follower of the Jewish law. And what what he's saying is, is I I came out of that. I, I I was enslaved to that, and I came out of that. And he's entreating them, become, become like me. I became like you, become like me. Paul is showing here this deep, intimate relationship that he had with the Galatians. And what's interesting is, do you feel like it's easier to follow somebody that you respect and that walks alongside you and that you have deep relationship with? You trust them, right? You, you trust their motives. You trust their intent. Uh, it leads you to trust their leadership. Well, Paul had this type of relationship, it seems, with the Galatians. But what's interesting is it, it didn't seem to be effective in their response. Do you notice his anguish? Do you notice his, his struggle? Because if you look in, look in verse 14. No, 13. You know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God. Many commentators um, believe that Paul possibly had a, um, an eye problem. We see it here and potentially in other passages. Because it says, it goes on to say that you would have gouged out your eyes for me as if you could give your eyes to someone else. That's how dear Paul was to these Galatians. And now it's like, 16, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? And so it's like, I'm pressing on you. We have such a great relationship, but, but now I come to press on you with the truth of the gospel, and you're almost pushing me away. 
And then when we get to verse 19, Paul illustrates something um, that's pretty profound. Uh, Let me ask this question. What's the worst pain you've ever been in? Think about that for a second. What's the worst pain you've ever experienced? Um, I, I was in the room when my wife delivered our nine-month-old son, hear me, with no medication. And I would argue that anguish is an understatement. Okay? It doesn't even describe the amount of pain that I heard and was perceived from her. Paul's, Paul's using this illustration when he says, I wish I could, or in 19, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, as if Paul has experienced that, right? Um, until Christ is formed in you. Here's, here's what's amazing. Like, think about that pain level. Any guys ever had kidney stones? Like they parallel that with like childbirth? I have no clue, okay? Um, Paul here is enduring what he says is similar to childbirth, even though he really probably doesn't know, but this unbelievable amount of anguish for what? For somebody's maturity in Christ. Like, what an incredible, like, we'll go through all kinds of pain for what? Like, what's it going to benefit me? What what am I going to get out of this? What's it going to bring me in the end? And Paul's like, no, I'm going through this pain so that you might be mature in the Lord so that you might be mature in Christ. Um, last week, we talked about adoption. This idea that we're, we're fully adopted. Um, and really what we're doing this morning is a continuation of that. But I want to give you a progression that I see um, that I think is true for all of us many times related to uh, the truth of adoption. And here it is. Number one, the, the truth is that if you, by faith, have embraced relationship with Christ, the truth is you are an adopted child of God. Okay, now, number two is um, believe that. Believe that you're an adopted child of God. So there's truth, but there's many people that don't believe the truth. Okay, that doesn't change the truth. Okay, now... It, Believe the fact that you're an adopted child of God. And then number three is live out as if that really is true. Okay, what happens is number three doesn't happen. Okay, we we know, okay, adopted child of God. uh, We believe it, but yet number three oftentimes isn't really on our radar, which would go to show that number two probably isn't really happening in our lives. Do we really believe the truth of that? Now James would argue that if three isn't true of you, then you might not be an adopted child of God. What does your life show? Look at verse 21. We're going to go into now an example that Paul is going to hash out for us related to this idea. An example of taking matters into your own hands. Have you ever done that before? Have you ever, um, I did this in in high school a lot. Um, 
we'd have like group projects, right? But I didn't want anybody else to like have any part. I was just like, I got it, guys. You just sit back. I'll get the A for us. Um, I just, t- I just take it over. Like, yeah, you're going to mess it up. Like, you're not going to do it how I want to do it. I want it done, so I'll just do it. Um, probably wasn't the best approach. Um, some of us, like, we have that tendency. I got this. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I don't know what God's doing over here, but I'm going to do this because God really needs my help. Well, Paul's going to show us an example of that from, from Genesis 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the child of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Let me try to help bring some clarity to this. Look at 21. Paul uses this phrase, you who desire to be under the law. I didn't realize this, but much of my, my life growing up, I had this desire to be under the law. Like, I was like, I want to do this. I want to do right. 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 But really what it was was my own efforts rather than the efforts and, and the righteous life of Christ. Okay, we, we talk a ton about the death of Christ, right? But how often do we talk about the life of Christ? Because apart from his righteous life that he lived that is ours, He didn't just die the death we should have died. He lived the life that we're called to live. That the law demanded that we live, but cannot. And so you think about this pursuit of living under the law is really a silly pursuit. Paul's going to tell a story here. And it comes, you can look back later at Genesis 15 and 16. And you're familiar, we've talked about this a ton, but, but God comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to do amazing things through you and through your family. I'm going to number your descendants like the sand on the seashores, and I'm going to bring about the, the, the Messiah, the Christ, through your line. The only problem was what? Moses, Abraham's wife was pushing 100 years old, could not have children. So what happens? Much like we do, Abraham and Sarah, Abram and Sarai at that time, come up with this brilliant idea. We'll help God out. What do they do? Sarai says to Abram, I got an idea. Can you imagine this? Wives in the room? I have an idea. Um, Why don't you sleep with our servant girl, Hagar? You have a child with Hagar, and then um, that'll be the child we need. 
you think Abraham was like, okay? Like, that, that'd probably be really awkward. Like, it's one thing if it was Abraham's idea. It wasn't. Okay? So, so what's happening? If you look at verse 23, it says, But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. So through Hagar comes Ishmael. We, we know later on that, that Isaac comes through Sarah, the, the promised child, the miraculous birth that when, that they, when Sarah found out that she was with child, she literally laughed. Because she's like, this isn't even possible. Okay, so, so Isaac is the one that's, that's a promised child. It's God's doing. Ishmael was, was, man, was Abraham and Sarah's like, I'm going to conjure this up in my own head as to how we can go about helping God out in this situation. What are they doing? They're taking matters into their own hands over and over and over again. Let me, let me give you a little chart to maybe help, help hash this out. Hagar illustrates slavery. What the, what the passage here talks about being a slave woman. Okay. Um, Ishmael is on her side according to their own efforts, according to the flesh. You have Sarah on the other side, the promised child, Isaac, that illustrates freedom. That's a picture of, of heaven and the freedom that comes through relationship with Christ and the one day being taken out of Slavery. Now, here's, here's something to think about. Look, look down at 24 for a second. Notice it says this. These two women are two covenants, one from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Um, have you ever thought about the fact that slavery being this, this binding thing in your life um, that really you almost can in no of your own strength get out of that? The, the most crippling thing that you could probably experience if you take your mind back to, to this time. But what's happening is if you look down in verse 28, it's a picture of Isaac. Now you brothers, so Paul gets very personal once again when he says the word brothers, like Isaac are children of promise. This is why I talk all the time about the promises of God that are everything to the believer because what do they do they remove your own efforts they remove your own power they remove your own strength could sarah and abraham bear a child in their own ability no no but what we like to do is we like to put ourselves in situations where we line up so that we can be successful but God wants to do the very opposite and put us in situations where we have no hope apart from him jumping in and changing the scenario. Here's the deal. Anytime we try to do things on our own power, it's going to go bad. It might look like it's going good, but it's going to go bad. I want to illustrate this. Um, go to Genesis 3. I'm going to give you eight examples uh, if, if we have time to get to all eight. Eight examples of what happens when we try to take matters into our own hands? Um, we're all familiar with the story of Adam and Eve, um, most likely. Um, so I won't uh, take the time to walk through the whole story. But God basically says, I have a plan for you, and I have a plan for this world, and you're going to represent that. And what happens is, he says, you can have everything. 
But this tree right here, no. Just stay away from that. But what, and what do they focus on? That one thing that God says, no. It's so like us, is it not? Like they had everything at their disposal, but the one thing he says, no, they, they, they jump on, they take. Now what happens? Look at verse 8. They ate of the fruit. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife were uh, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. What happened? They're, they're, they're running from God. God's pursuing them, but they're, they're running from God. Now jump to verse 16. Okay, I want you to see this. Now we know today that because, like, if you look at the world, if you look at the pain and, and all that's experienced in this world, we know today the result of this choice. I'm going to do things the way I want to do things. We know the weight of this sin. But if you look at 16, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. Are you, are you seeing this? You seeing what happens when we try to do things on our own? They ultimately get kicked out of the garden. And the course of history is never the same. Go to... Flip to the right to Genesis 19. Wickedness has become so prevalent on the earth that God is going to destroy the city of Sodom. 1915. I'm going to have you turn a little bit here. Um, so I hope you're ready. Uh, 1915. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up! Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and two daughters by the hand, and the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. Now jump to verse 24. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all, the val- and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Check this out. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And we've heard that story probably a bunch and we probably make a big joke of it. But here's the truth of the matter. God had given instruction to them through these angels. Lot's wife decided, I want to do it my way. And she became a pillar of salt. Dead. Done. Flip to the right. Numbers chapter 13. God has promised the land of Canaan to the people of Israel and Moses is leading them and the Lord speaks to Moses and to uh, the Israelites and this is what he says in Numbers 13 verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, send, me, send men to spy out the land of Canaan 
which I am giving to the people of Israel. From every tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among you. So Moses sent them from the wilderness to Paran according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the people of Israel. We'll jump to verse 25. At the end of the 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregations of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and their cities are fortified and very large, and besides, we saw the descendants of Achan, and the, Am- the Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negeb. The Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. So what are are they doing? Here's what's really interesting about this interaction. I don't see anywhere where God said, I want you to go to the land, and I want you to make a decision as to whether or not we should take it over. There wasn't a decision to be made. They just said, go, check it out, come back, and let us know what it's like. But it wasn't like the, the determining factor as to whether or not we're supposed to take this or not. And what happens? As a result of this, the ten spies, did you do the, they ever do the ten were, ten were bad, two were good? It's good. I'm I'm glad. I haven't either. Ryan taught me that just a minute ago. Thanks for that. So the ten spies and all of their families and everyone 20 and older, what happened? They died in the wilderness. And then everyone 19 and younger, they had to stay in the wilderness for 40 years, basically until everyone else died off. They had to watch everyone else die off as a result of, I'm going to do it my way. I'm not going to do it God's way. Flip to the right, Numbers chapter 20. I hope you're beginning to get the picture. They're in the wilderness wanting some water. Let's pick it up at verse 2. Now there was no water for the congregation. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here. He goes on to tell Moses, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to speak to the rock. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a miracle. And from that rock, water is going to come out and everyone is going to be able to drink from it. Look at verse 
10. Now Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? So Moses has gotten so frustrated, they're complaining. And what happens in verse 11? Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And this is amazing. Water came out. Direct disobedience to the Lord, yet in God's grace, he still provided what he said he would provide. Like, that baffles me. God said, speak to the rock. He hits it, and it still works. But God still offers the grace of water, even though he disobeyed. In 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you do not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. So what happens as a result? Moses is not able to enter the promised land. Flip to the right. First Samuel 15. Verse 1, and Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. So God said, I'm going to anoint Saul after the people's grumbling and complaining about not having a king. I'm going to anoint Saul as king. And here's your appointment. Here's your assignment, King Saul. Verse 3, now go and strike Amalek. And devote to destruction all that, they do, all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep and camel and donkey. Now let's see what he does. Verse 7. After he, after, he, after he rallies all his men, in verse 7 he says, And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Haval and as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. And devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. But the word of the Lord came to Samuel. And this is unbelievable. God says, I regret that I've made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Saul said, I'm going I'm, I'm to do it my way. I'm going to decide, here's what I want to do. Here's what God says. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I have a better plan. I have a better idea what happens. God rejects him as king. How about Jonah. You know the story of Jonah? God gives instruction to Jonah. I want you to go to Tarshish. I want you to go and reach the people for the kingdom of God. Moses is like, okay, um, I'm going to go this way. You said go that way. I'm going to go this way. And it literally says in the text, we won't go there for the sake of time, that he went from the presence of the Lord. He got on a ship God brought this storm. We know the story quite well. I'm sure God brought this storm. Moses, Moses, uh, Jonah is sleeping in the bottom of the ship. The guys come down to him. They say, Jonah, what is going on? They end up throwing Jonah overboard. He's swallowed by a whale. In God's mercy, he doesn't get consumed by that whale. But is eventually, after three days, spit upon the shore. 
And God gives him the same command again, which is unbelievable. Why did God not just absolutely strike him dead? Gives him the same command again. Go to Matthew 18. I have two more. This is the parable of the unforgiven servant. Matthew 18, start at verse 21. Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many times as seven, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, he goes on to tell this parable, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that they had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that servant went out, he found one of his servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay him what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had all that had been take, all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, "You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servants as I had mercy on you?" And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailer until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from his heart. What is happening? Decides to do things his own way. Decides to do things in direct contradiction to God. It's a picture of imprisonment. It's a picture of bondage. It's ultimately a picture of hell. And the most staggering one is Acts chapter 5. We'll start at verse four, chapter 4, verse 31. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So they're being dishonest. 
But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourselves part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. That's part one. Part two says this. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what happened. So his wife comes in, same scenario, does not know her husband is dead. Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yeah, that's right. Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out immediately. She fell down at his feet and breathed her last. What's the point? What, 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 what do we learn? What are the lessons that are to be learned from this? If you try to take matters into your own hands, it's going to go bad. In the end, it is always going to go bad. Paul says in Philippians 2, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So what's interesting is God's like, you got to do this. Work it out. But, but we stop there so often as opposed to going to verse 13 and it says, for it is God who works in you. Like My prayer all the time is, God, you got to do this in me. Because if, if it's up to me, if it's up to my own ability, if it's up to my own doing, it's going to go wrong. John writes in John 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that beareth much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. We don't believe that. Do you believe that? I don't, I don't think you do. I oftentimes don't. Do you believe that apart from God, we have nothing? Apart from me, you can do nothing. We would argue, oh, I can do a decent amount. No. You need to write that down this week where you can see it. Pray, God, help me to realize that apart from you, I can do nothing. Pastor David Platt, in a pretty amazing book called Radical, put it like this. The dangerous assumption we unknowingly accept in the American dream is that our greatest asset is our own ability. The American dream prizes what people can accomplish. And when they believe in themselves and trust in themselves, and we are drawn towards such thinking. But the gospel has different priorities. The gospel beckons us to die to ourselves and to believe in God and to trust in His 
power. In the gospel, God confronts us with our utter inability to accomplish anything of value apart from Him. I challenge you this week to observe people. Every place you go, I want you to look into people's eyes. I want you to watch people interact. And you know what you'll find? You'll find people that are hurting. You'll find people that are broken. You'll find people that don't know where to turn. And what I pray you'll see from that is not only our world's great need for God, but even our very own as believers. That apart from Him, we have no ability to do anything of value. This church will become absolutely nothing if we don't beg God. you got to do this in us. Your pursuits, where you're headed, your job, raising kids, your friendships, your investments in the stock market, whatever you're doing, If God's not in it, man, it might, it might become absolutely huge, but in the end it'll fall flat on your face. Is that worth it to you? I don't know. Let's pray and then I'll give us some instruction on responding. Father, God, help us to believe this this morning. God, we at times can be pretty competent people. We at times can be pretty confident in our own abilities. And I pray, God, this morning that you would crush it. That you would crush us with your love. That you would show us that you're putting us in situations, you're trying to put us in situations where we realize more than anything we need you. God, forgive us for so often taking matters into our own hands. God, might we come to the end of ourselves this morning. In Christ's name, amen.